And welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Chad. I almost left it like there was supposed to be somebody else there. You did. But there's not. It's just uh, us three. Just us three. Eli may be back soon, though. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, update on Eli front. He had another surgery since the last time we informed you of surgery. Um... But he is back home again, and he is recuperating, doing the healing stuff. But keep him in your thoughts and prayers, because he'll need him. It'll be a long healing process. It's another surgery in five weeks or four weeks, probably when this episode comes out. Yeah. Oh wow. That one's to put them all back together. Yeah, they left him apart this time, and then they're gonna go back and put them back together. Like C three PO. Yep. Yep. All right. So this week we have. A ghost story. <laughs> yeah, I was reading through a blog that one of our listeners writes. We'll put the link in the show notes so y'all can check it out too. This blog has sent me spinning down the rabbit hole on several occasions. This particular time, it compelled us to tell you all the story of the Greenbrier Ghost. <laughs> the Greenbrier Ghost gets its name from the apparition of Elva Zona Hester who appeared to her mother Mary Jane in 1897 to inform her that she did not die from natural causes, but was in fact murdered. Murder. She divulged the details and even named the culprit. This all happened in Greenbrier County, located in West Virginia. West Virginia, Mountain Mama, take me home. And it is the only case in America in which someone was arrested and tried from a ghost story. Bum, bum, bum. In 1896, the 23-year-old Elva Hester, who preferred to be called Zona, was a single woman living in the rural area of Greenbrier County. This was your quintessential small town with not much going on. People gossiped and knew everyone's business. But due to Victorian customs and politeness, they didn't get into each other's business. Uh, I wish we had that still. Oh, they still talked about it. They just didn't say anything to your face about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd still rather have that. (laughs) They might talk to everybody else around you about it, but they, they didn't talk to your face. A mysterious man named Edward Shue, trout to his friends, had just moved into town and started working as a blacksmith for James Crookshanks. Crookshanks, that's the name of the cat in Harry Potter. That's the name of uh, oh, Her- Hermione's cat. Oh, yeah, I guess it is, isn't it? Do you not remember that, Chad? Crookshanks. I was never a big Harry Potter <gasps> fan. I read like the first four when I was a kid. but I read them all when I was an adult. Yeah. In fact, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. <laughs> <laughs> Edward was muscular, tall, wore slick clothes, and all the young women cooed over him, including Zona. Her mother, Mary Jane Hester, disapproved and did not like Edward for various reasons, such as he claimed he was 29, but looked much older. Usually they do the other way. He was always... Well, that's the way you do it. Never mind. He was, he was always bragging about himself and telling stories that couldn't possibly be true. There was just something about his persona 
that Mary Jane loathed, but Zona found irresistible. Zona and Edward began courting, despite the familial disapproval. And after less than one month, the two lovers eloped in a nearby county in October of 1896. We were married in October, too. Mm-hmm. It's a great month. For the first few weeks of marriage, everything is going well for the shoes. Edward goes to work as a blacksmith every day, while Zona takes care of their home. Not long after this, she falls ill. January 23rd, 1897 starts off like most other days. Edward wakes up and gets dressed to head to Crookshank's blacksmith's shop. Zona, who had fallen ill, is in bed resting. Before Edward gets to work, he stops by Miss, Mrs. Martha Jones's house with an errand for her 11-year-old boy, Anderson. From what I have gathered, Andy did errands and small jobs to make a little money, so this wasn't unusual. Edward asks if he can go to his farm to collect up the chicken eggs and deliver them either to the market in town, since Mrs. Chu is sick, or in some versions, he wanted him to collect the eggs and help uh, Zona pickle them. He also asks if while he's there, if he could check on Zona and see if she needed anything from town. Mrs. Jones agrees to pass this errand to Andy, and Edward heads off. Edward returned to check back around 11 and finds out he hadn't completed the errand, but he had been running errands for the doctor. So Edward added to the errand to let Mrs. Shue know he wouldn't be home for lunch. When Andy gets to the farmhouse, he heads to the chicken coop, but there are no eggs. This is kind of weird because chickens lay eggs every day. Andy figures maybe Mrs. Shu got to feeling better and grabbed them. Now Andy still has to check in with Mrs. Shu and, depending on the source, help pickle eggs or see if she needs anything from the market. Oh, and to let her know Edward won't be home for lunch. So Andy knocks on the front door and waits. And knocks on the front door and waits. After several minutes, he tries the doorknob and it's unlocked. He bashfully steps inside and maybe calls out for Mrs. Shue. The house is completely silent. She isn't in the kitchen. It is cold and empty. He continues through the house and then stops dead in his tracks. <laughs> on the floor. Shadow. <laughs> on the floor near the bottom of the stairs lies Zona. Her feet were together. One hand was by the side and one hand was lying across her body. Her eyes were open but blank. Her mouth was wide open, and her head was turned slightly to the side towards Andy. He suspects she is dead, but to make sure, he gets close enough to touch her arm, and he recoils back when he senses it is ice cold. He sprints out of the house, and he doesn't stop running until he gets home. Andy tells Aunt Martha what he saw, and she takes him to Crookshank's blacksmith's shop so he can tell Edward. Edward takes right off and runs home. The workers at the blacksmith's shop send out a call for the town's doctor and coroner, Dr. George W. Knapp. It was at least an hour before Dr. Knapp arrived at the shoe farm. He doesn't find Edward or Zona in the dining room. Instead... They are both upstairs in the master bedroom. 
Dr. Knapp walks into a bizarre scene. Zona's corpse is on the bed, dressed in a high, stiff-collared dress, popular to the Victorian era, and she has a large scarf tied around her neck. Next to her, cradling the head of the corpse, is Edward, sobbing uncontrollably. Edward explains this dress and scarf are her favorites, and he wants her wearing them when she's laid to rest. Now, it was Victorian custom at the time for relatives to dress the corpse, and this was traditionally done by female relatives for the female departed. But I guess maybe we gotta chalk this up to Zona and Edward eloping and abandoning the family due to their disapproved union. Whenever the doctor tries to get close and examine Zona's body, Edward gets more upset and the doctor backs away. He does note some bruising on the neck, but can't examine further. Eventually he gives up and puts down the cause of death as everlasting faint. A.K.A. a heart attack. Everlasting faint. I love the terms they have. So I tried to look this up, but it only pulled up more sources for the Greenbrier Ghost. And those sources mostly said it meant heart failure or heart attack. But we could also guess that's just what Dr. Knapp would write for cause of death when he didn't have a fucking clue. (laughs) To me, everlasting faint sounds like the professional way of saying they fell asleep and didn't wake up. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a a pop rock band. (laughs) I was thinking it sounds like a fairy tale, like... Sleeping Beauty had an everlasting faint. It's definitely one of those old-timey diseases mm-hmm. like canine fever or bad blood. Well, it makes sense. I mean... Syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense in the fact that women in the Victorian time were constantly fainting, you know, but the tight corsets and stuff like that. I mean, it was not uncommon for women to just faint. So this is the everlasting faint. It's called death. Yeah. <laughs> So Dr. Knapp changed the cause of death to childbirth a few days later, which didn't make any more sense. But Dr. Knapp had been treating her for an unspecified female trouble for two weeks prior to her death. Like most small towns, word traveled fast about Edward's strange behavior. Zona's mother, Mary Jane Hester, was quoted as saying to the tragic news of her daughter's passing that, quote, Devil has killed her, unquote. On January 28, 1897, the Greenbrier Independent published Elva Zona Hester Shoes' obituary on page 3. Edward also behaved strangely during the funeral. Instead of greeting incoming guests, as was the Victorian custom, he stationed himself by the coffin and refused to let anyone get close. Even Zona's mother, Mary Jane, was denied near the body. Her head was propped with a pillow and a blanket to either side, Edward stating he wanted her to be more comfortable. People that moved the coffin to the burial site said it looked as though her neck was, quote, a bit loose, unquote. She was buried in the white sheet that was in the coffin before burial was given to Mary Jane. She thought it had an odd odor to it, so she went to wash it. The water in the basin turned red when the sheet was dropped in. The once white sheet was now stained pink, but the water was clear. Mary Jane believed this omen to signify further that this death was no accident. Her daughter 
was murdered. Murder. I mean, I don't know anything else about this case, so I'm going to say this right now. Nobody's really, I mean, to me, that's not acting strange. When you think of grief, everybody reacts to it differently. And, right. you know, it could, I mean, I don't know the whole outcome of the case. I don't, I'm, I am blind to this. Dave and Chad know what happened. I don't know. So, but I would think that they were newlyweds. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they were best friends. I mean, I don't know how I would act if you died, but I probably would be pretty damn clean to your body. Yeah, you know what I yeah. mean. Like, so I mean, when it when when any time there's a case and they, they acted strange, well, it's grief. Everybody reacts differently to grief. Chad punched a wall. Yeah. You know, I I went into protection mode and like my goal was to organize and keep everybody oh make sure everybody else was okay and all of that you know because that guy means one of those things like he wouldn't let anybody near the body that either makes you think like he's standing there like a lineman like facing the audience like with his arms out like don't get near it or he's like laying over the corpse oh lord oh god i say the way i i heard it was that from reports were that he was like crouched over the body and just wouldn't let people get close enough to her to yeah. actually see. And her. I mean, from my true crime, true crime conspiracy brain, I'm thinking he doesn't want people to see something. Like, but okay. in yeah. in the end, in any time there's a death, you can't say somebody's acting strange because you don't ever, never know how somebody's going to yeah. act to death. So very true. So none of this sits well with Mary Jane. She is furious. Her daughter is dead and how her son-in-law behaved at the funeral. And now, the omen with the sheet. She calls out in desperation and prays for God every day to show her what happened to her daughter. A few weeks after the funeral, Mary Jane is woken up by a bright light in her room at the foot of her bed. Aliens. Mary Jane isn't scared, but instead very confused. She stares into the light, and it gradually starts to take a physical form. That's when Mary recognizes Zona. Zona visits three more nights in succession. Over the course of these visits, she tells her mother what happened to her. On the night of her death, Zona cooked supper for her husband Edward to enjoy when he got home from work. When he sat down at the table, Edward's face clouded over, and he begins to berate her for not preparing any meat to go with the meal. He completely loses his temper and starts taking down and packing Zona's things, ruining some of them. Then in his fit of rage, he grabbed her right by the neck and began squeezing. And he just kept squeezing. And he squeezed so tight with his strong hands that her neck snapped between the first and second vertebrae. That is when Zona stood back and turned her head all the way around to show her neck was indeed broken. Then she disappeared. Exorcist shit going on. Mary Jane started confiding in friends about these four visits from the ghost of her dead daughter. Now this is a small town and word travels everywhere. There was already some gossip Edward had something to do with his wife's death because of how unpolite and untraditional he was before and at the funeral. Plus some rumors about his past we will get into later. 
He got some skeletons in that closet. Mary Jane even goes to the office of the county prosecutor, John Alfred Preston. Now, Mr. Preston thinks Mary has gone hysteric with grief. But but he does go to speak with Dr. Knapp, the aforementioned coroner. Dr. Knapp reveals to the prosecutor that he gave up on examining Zona's body because every time he got close, Edward would burst into tears. Now, Preston doesn't believe in ghosts. But the fact that Zona's body was never autopsied causes him to agree to open a case. Mary Jane is relieved, but Edward is furious when he hears that Zona's body is going to be exhumed. The prosecutor's office also begins to investigate Edward's shoe. The autopsy was performed starting February 22, 1897, in the one-room schoolhouse. <laughs> this is where That's they, where I always do they, my autopsies. Is that where they <laughs> teach the children anatomy class? <laughs> <clears throat> Required by law to be in attendance was Edward Shue. And according to some sources, and I find this very peculiar, Andy Jones, the 11-year-old boy who found Zona's body. The entire autopsy lasted for three days. On the third day, after everything seemed normal, they got to the point of examining the neck. They didn't even look at the neck till the third day? Did they start with the toes and work their way up the body? I'm not sure how they did it back then. I just know that like now, like the first thing they do is like do a glance over and note, write down anything that they see with a naked eye. And then they dig in. Yeah. God. Now, since since it's not in here, I'm going to kind of talk about this a little bit. Um, now, from my reports, were that uh, Mr. Edward Shue uh, acted very nonchalantly about this, and even uh, when they told him they were going to dig up the body, even said something to the detective as a in the similar to the words of, "They're not going to find out I did it." Or they're not going to find evidence that I did it. Um, and then was very nonchalant, just whittling a stick um, while waiting. And seemed unbothered by everything until he started getting up towards the head. Hmm. Anderson Jones, in a 1910 interview, said of this moment, quote, Suddenly the doctor turned to Mr. Preston. They whispered together for a few minutes. Then Mr. Preston turned to Shu and said, Well, Shu, we have found your wife's neck to be broken. Shu's head dropped. A change came over him that I can't explain, but it certainly proved his guilt to me. Unquote. Hmm. <clears throat> According to the Pocahontas Times, published on March 9th, 1897, quote, The discovery was made that the neck was broken and the windpipe mashed. On the throat, there were marks of fingers indicating that she had been choked. The neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae. The ligaments were torn and ruptured. The windpipe had been crushed at a point in front of the neck, A dislocated neck between the first and second vertebrae? Just as Mary Jane had said the ghost of her daughter Zona had told her. Two theories. The mother did it. (laughs) Because she was upset. She knew the details. 
and a good investigator would write that shit down. Second of all, it was a really fucking ghost. <laughs> One of those two. That, that, that's where I'm standing. But I, I, I told you guys earlier, I haven't said on the podcast. When this story started, I said, as a juror, I would find it really hard to convict somebody on the testimony of a ghost. <laughs> but that's that's intriguing. That would make me go, Preston charges Edward Shue with murder and takes him into police custody. Investigators begin to uncover details from Edward Trout Shue's past. And, of course, everyone in Greenbrier County was sharing tales as well. One of the first things they uncover is that his real name isn't even Edward. It is actually Erasmus Stribbling Trout Shue. I, I understand why he went by Edward. I mean... <laughs> Erasmus. Stribbling. Get your butt in here, Erasmus. Who the fuck names their kid Erasmus? Erasmus. Erasmus Stribbling. Trout. Trout. Shoe. Well, Trout was his nickname, but... Erasmus. <laughs> yeah. He is also not 29 years old. He's actually... 35. Yeah, it happens. Zona was also not his first wife. Or his second. She was his third. Ooh, what happened to the other two? Well, 11 years ago, back in 1885, Edward married his first spouse, Allie Cutlip. This was in Pocahontas County, Virginia. Uh, much like in Greenbrier County, people knew everyone's business. So everyone knew around town that Edward would beat Allie on occasion. But folks in these parts at this time didn't get into each other's business to a fault. That is, until one night when a group of teenage boys escorted by their school teacher came a-knocking on Edward's door. When he answered, they dragged him out into the cold. They dragged him all the way to the Greenbrier River, telling him they were doing this because he kept beating up Allie. When they got to the river, they shoved him out onto the ice. That's when the ice busted, and he went right in. The next day, Edward went into town to press charges on the boys and their school teacher. But the townspeople lined up to vouch for the accused characters and to provide alibis for those involved. <laughs> good town, good town. Now, I'll admit here, I think that some of this sounds more like legend and hot goss with a little truth mixed in. But a few years later, in 1889, Edward is arrested for horse thievery, and Allie uses the opportunity to divorce Edward and escape from him. Yay, Allie! After Edward is released from jail, he moves to the outskirts of Pocahontas County. Where you paint with all the colors of the wind? Actually, where he marries another young woman named Lucy Ann Tritt. Not even eight months later, she dies. The obituary just says it was a sudden death. Some say she fell and hit her head. And according to the rumor mill, Edward dropped a brick on her head while they were working on the chimney together. But whatever, <laughs> but whatever happened, the cause of death was deemed by authorities to be some type of an accident. Mary Jane Hester is also getting wind of all these horrifying stories. About her ex-son-in-law. 
There's also a rumor that Lucy uh, fell through the ice. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. hear that about was that one, one. I found. I also heard that it's probably more likely because nobody really works on their chimney in the middle of February. <laughs> it's also more likely that eight months after they're married is about the time she would be due for childbirth. Yeah. And she probably died in, in childbirth. That's not part of the legend. It doesn't make it a cool, <laughs> creepy story. Nope, he just dropped a brick on her head. Oopsies. He thought it was a cartoon. I'm just picturing uh, Three Stooges. I was actually picking a picture in Roger Rabbit. <laughs> so Edward seems confident about his upcoming murder trial. Zona's neck was broken, but it's impossible to prove that he was the one who broke it. All the prosecution really has is circumstantial evidence and the testimony of a ghost. <laughs> See, <laughs> a lot of murder cases, though, are convicted on circumstantial evidence only. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of murder cases that are found guilty under circumstantial evidence only that are wrongful convictions. Mm-hmm. Very true. So, again, as a juror... <laughs> <laughs> I guess with today's mindset as a juror, I would be going, it can't quite say guilty. Give me more (laughs) evidence. (laughs) So in jail, Edward is cocky. Well, he was cocky everywhere he happened to be. But he told other prisoners that Zona was his third wife, and he hoped to marry seven over the course of his life. Goals. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he told reporters that they cannot prove he killed her and he would be set free because of the lack of evidence. In June of 1897, the murder trial of Erasmus Stribbling Edward Trout Shoe began, five months after the death of Zona. Even though Mary Jane was the reason they were all at this point, the prosecutor Preston does not want her to take the stand. His reasoning is that the ghost testimony would only hurt the case, or the defense attorney would make her out to be an insane person, or even worse, unchristian. Oh, dear Lord Jesus! <laughs> but I, I agree a hundred percent with the prosecution there. Yeah, Edwards' defense attorneys, William Reekler and James Gardner, took the opposite approach. Fun fact. James Gardner was the first black lawyer to practice in a circuit court in the state of West Virginia. Very, very, very cool. 1897? Mm-hmm. 1897. That's, that's impressive, West Virginia. Well, he, he was practicing before this, even. That's 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 still damn impressive. Well, West Virginia was part of the Union. I know, but I mean, War, so. still. I mean, there's still a lot of places that haven't had black attorneys or judges or anything, so... Yeah, that's true. I mean, true. Edmund just elected their first black mayor. Really? In 2021? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think Norman's ever had one. I don't even know who the mayor is, to uh, be honest. I can picture her face. I know her name. Oh, it's a woman. Yeah. yeah. Cool. But, yes, that's that's still very impressive. Oh, yeah, I thought so, too. So, the trial transcripts have been lost over the years. However, I do have portions which were published in the Greenbrier Independent we will read. So they didn't keep those with those weather records. 
No, weather records have its own special place. Um, <laughs> I was told that there was a fire no, that burned up a lot of them. Always a fire. Why hasn't a fire gotten the weather records? The roof. The roof. The roof <laughs> is on fire. We don't need no water. Let those court records burn. <laughs> <laughs> I also have notes from the website gothichorrorstories.com, which state, Greenbrier Court, Prosecutor Preston kept his case to the earthly facts, including testimony from several people of how Trout had refused to let anyone near his wife's body during the wake and funeral, as well as the stiff high-necked collar and scarf with a large bow tied around her neck. Others related how after the funeral, Shu's grief seemed to have dissipated quickly, and he showed no signs of mourning and behaved nothing like a man who had lost his wife of little more than a couple of months. So pretty much kind of like what you were saying, he was pretty much kind of on trial due to these rumors and then the fact that he just didn't grieve right. Yeah. Which is not necessarily something to convict somebody on. Yeah. I mean, it might be a reason for police to look into them, but not necessarily a reason to convict. Then came the defense, and they tried to offer alternate theories. There were other explanations for a broken neck, including the typical jostling of the body in January, both in dressing, putting in the coffin, and carrying in a wagon for over 15 miles across frozen roads. Didn't you say that the body was found at the base of the stairs? Yes. Why wouldn't you, you just know, go with that one? So that she fell down the stairs? That she fell down the fucking stairs. Yeah, would have been a lot easier. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Would have answered the broken I will, neck part. I will actually answer that later. Oh, okay. <laughs> then Rucker and Gardner turned to the circumstances that had led to the autopsy in the first place. Don't do it. Or the visitation of Mary Jane Hester by her deceased daughter, Zona. Oh, they did it. <laughs> now we arrive at the transcripts we do have. Huh, surprise, we have these. That's and interesting. <laughs> they saved just this part. They're well, like, well, there's a fire. I gotta get that part of the transcript. Well, well, no, these transcripts come from a publishing in the newspaper, the Greenbrier Independent, because they were so salacious. Oh, okay, so... Most people had copies of it, so one fire wouldn't destroy them all. Well, no, this was published in a newspaper. I know, so multiple people had copies of this particular part of the transcript. So one fire wouldn't destroy them. No. Well, the fire wasn't at the newspaper place. It was at the courthouse. Maybe I'm not following what you're saying. Newspapers are handed out to the people. So like, mm -hmm. the whole town has copies of this. Oh, yeah, that, without a doubt. That, that, that's where I was going. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I saw this all on, like, microfish through the internet, so. But, anyway, here's the transcripts. Who wants to be the defense attorney? I'll do it. And do you want to be Mary Jane Hester? Sure. I have heard that you had some dream or vision which led to this post-mortem ex examination. They saw enough themselves without telling them. It was no dream. She came back and told me that he was mad that she did not have no meat cooked for supper. But she said she had plenty and said that she had butter and apple butter, apples, and named over two, kind, two or three kinds of jelly, pears, 
and cherries and raspberry jelly. And she said, I had plenty. And she says, don't you think he was mad and just took down all my nice things and packed them away and just ruined them? She also told me where I could look down back of Aunt Martha Jones in the meadow in the rocky place. And I could look in the cellar behind some loose planks and see it was a square log house and it was hewed right up to the square. And she said for me to look right and then right hand side of the door as you go in at the right hand corner as you go in. Well, I saw the place just exactly as she told me. I saw blood right there where she told me. She told me something about that meat every night that she came. Er, she came night. She came just as she did the night before. She came four times and four nights. But on the second night, she told me her neck was squeezed off at the first joint and it was just as she had told me. Now, Mrs. Heaster, this sad affair was very particularly impressed upon your mind, and there was not a moment during your waking hours that you did not dwell upon it. No, sir, and there is not yet either. And was this not a dream founded upon your distressed condition of mind? No, sir, it was no dream, for I was wide awake as I ever was. Then if not a dream or dreams, what do you call it? I prayed to the Lord that she come back and tell me what happened, and I prayed that she might come herself and tell me, or tell on him. Do you think that you actually saw her in flesh and blood? Yes, sir, I do. I told them the very dress that she was killed in, and she went to leave, and she went to leave me and turned her head completely around and looked at me like she wanted me to know all about it. And then the very next time she came back, she told me all about it. The first time she came, she seemed that she did not want to tell me as much about it as she did afterwards. The last night she was there, she told me that she did everything she could do. I am satisfied that she did all that too. Now, Mrs. Heaster, don't you know that these visions, as you term them or describe them, were nothing more or less than four dreams founded upon your distress? No, I don't know it. The Lord sent her to me to tell it. I was, only fr I was the only friend that she knew she could tell and put any confidence in it. I was the nearest one to her. She, he gave me a ring that he pretended she wanted me to have, but I don't know what dead woman he might have taken it off of. I want her own ring. He would not let me have it. Mrs. Heaster, are you positively sure that these are not four dreams? Yes, sir. It was not a dream. I don't dream when I am wide awake. To be sure... I know I saw her right there with me. Are you not considerably superstitious? No, sir, I am not. I was never that way before, and I am not now. Do you believe in the scriptures? Yes, sir. I have no reason not to believe it. And do you believe the scriptures contain the words of God and his son? 
Yes, sir, I do. Don't you believe it? Now, I would like, if I could, to get you to say that these were four dreams and not four visions or appearances of your daughter in flesh and blood. I am not going to say that, for I am not going to lie. Then you insist that she actually appeared in flesh and blood to you upon four different occasions. Yes, sir. Did she not have any other conversations with you other than upon the matter of her death? Yes, sir. Some other little things. Some things I have forgotten. Just a few words. I just wanted the particulars about her death, and I got them. When she came, did you touch her? Yes, sir. I got up on my elbows and reached out a little further, as I wanted to see if people came in their coffins. And I sat up and leaned on my elbow, and there was light in the house. It was not a lamplight. I wanted to see if there was a coffin, but there was not. She was just like she was when she left this world. It was just after I went to bed, and I wanted her to come and talk to me, and she did. This is before the inquest, and I told my neighbors. They said she was exactly as I told them she was. Have you ever seen the premises where your daughter lived? No, sir, I had not. But I found them this is exactly as she told me it was. And I never laid eyes on that house until, until since her death. She told me this before I knew anything of the building at all. How long was it after this when you had these interviews with your daughter until, until you did see buildings? It was a month or more after the examination. It has been a little over a month since I saw her. In re-cross-examination, there was this. You said your daughter told you that down by the fence in the rocky place, you'd find some things. She said for me to look there. She didn't say I would find some things, but for me to look there. Did she tell you what to look for? No, she did not. I was so glad to see her, I forgot to ask her. Have you examined that place since? Yes, sir. We looked at the fence a little, but did not find anything. Got any thoughts about this? Sounds like a typical uh, examination and cross-examination. I think it... um, I think the defense was trying to make her look like a hysterical woman. Yeah. But I think she held her ground well. She gave plenty of detail. Edward Shue took the stand in his own trial. He is described as seeding and antagonistic. He accuses the prosecutors and his mother-in-law of being driven by spite. All throughout, he went on these long, pointless rants. This is all second-hand stuff. As I said, the trial transcripts were lost, but apparently he addressed the jury directly and implored them to look into his eyes and see that they are not the eyes of a killer. He sounds a little Bundy-ish to me. <laughs> the Greenbrier Independent on July 1st, 1897, described it thusly. Shu was on the stand all Tuesday afternoon. He was given free reign and talked at great length. He was very minute in particular in describing unimportant incidents. Denied pretty much everything said by other witnesses. Said the prosecution was all spite work. Entered a positive denial of the charge against him vehemently protested his innocence, calling God to witness, attempted that he had served a term in the pen, declared that he dearly loved his wife, 
and appealed to the jury to look into his face and then say if he was guilty. His testimony, manner, etc. made an unfavorable impression on the spectators. Unquote. I changed my mind. He sounds like Trump. <laughs> <laughs> then came the closing statements, which I have no details to offer, other than the defense was summed up this way. Quote, there was no living witness to the crime charged against Defendant Shu, and the state rests its case for conviction wholly upon circumstances connecting the accused with the murder charge. So the connection of the accused with the crime depends entirely upon the strength of the circumstantial evidence introduced by the state. There is no middle ground for you, the jury, to take. The verdict, inevitably and logically, must be for murder in the first degree or for an acquittal, unquote. The jury deliberated for a little over an hour. They found Erasmus Stribbling Edward Trout Shoe guilty. Guilty! Typically, at this point in time, people were hanged, and they were hanged quick. But given that Edward was convicted on the basis of circumstantial evidence, Edward was sentenced to life in prison instead of the death penalty. I could agree with that one. Okay. Several Greenbrier residents were pissed at this sentencing. And not long after the verdict, a mob formed, and they were going to bust Edward out of jail before he could be transferred to prison. It grew to a size of about 20 people, and they were determined to carry out the death penalty themselves. The Greenbrier deputy sheriff met with the mob when they arrived to start their assault and he began to speak with them. He was able to calm them down without any show of force before any damage was done. Shu was moved to the West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville. On March 13, 1900, three years after his sentence of life in prison, he died of an unknown epidemic. Some say measles, others say pneumonia, but it's not uncommon to get both at the same time. He was buried in an unmarked grave in the local cemetery. And that's the story of the Greenbrier Ghost. The only time in America that someone has been sentenced to prison because of a ghost story. I say in America, because about 70 years before Zona made her first appearance, a similar thing happened in Australia. Bum, bum, bum. Down under... In Campbelltown in 1826, a farmer named Frederick Fisher suddenly disappeared. Now, it did take a few days for people to start asking about him, and that's when neighbor George Worrell comes forward and says Frederick moved back to his hometown in England. And then everyone just dropped the matter. Four months later, John Farley is walking home from the pub when he sees someone sitting on the fence by the creek. Farley approaches the figure to get a closer look and is stunned to see none other than Frederick Fisher. They make eye contact and Fisher slowly points to the creek and vanishes into thin air. Zoinks! <laughs> Farley freaks out and rushes home. The next day, he tells everyone he saw Frederick's ghost and that it pointed to the creek. After much pressure from the community spreading the ghost story, local authorities agree to search the area, and it's not long before they fish Frederick's corpse out of it. It was unclear whether he had just drowned or was harmed, 
But the neighbor, George Worrell, who claimed he went back to England, had been selling off Frederick's things and pocketing the money. The police arrest Worrell, and he is convicted of murder. As for John Farley, years later, when he was close to death, he revealed he never actually saw Frederick Fisher's ghost, and didn't need to. He had actually witnessed the entire murder, but was afraid to tell the police because he thought George Worrell would come after him. There's also the Red Barn murder, which is an English murder case where the murderer was revealed by the victim's ghost. But that's a story for another time. Now, I had a good reason to derail the show and tell you the Australian story. Remember me telling you that on January 28, 1897, the Greenbrier Independent published Elva Zona Hester Shoes obituary on page 3. On the front page of that very same newspaper was an article about Frederick Fisher's ghost. Ooh. Synchronicities? <laughs> so maybe his, her mom read the article about Frederick Fisher and made it all up, and it just happened to connect with her having a broken neck. And yeah. Because if she had heard rumors about her neck looking loose and bruising around the neck, she could make an assumption from that that she had broken her neck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that, is an, that is a really good point there. Um, yeah. Very interesting. Or the mother had something to do with it and she wanted to frame the son-in-law that she didn't like. I don't know. I with with 1890s criminology and forensics. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, the defense shot themselves in the foot by calling her onto the stand because I think at this point you're dealing with a lot of religious people, and if she's saying that she had prayed to God to give her answers, and then she says this happened, that actually makes her more believable to a devout Christian. You know, yeah. Now, still, where I stand on this, I couldn't convict somebody with the testimony of a ghost, <laughs> and there's not enough evidence there to prove he's the one who murdered her. Right, right. But at the same time, he does have enough history that I could I could assume that he is capable of it, but. There's no evidence of it. So as a juror today, I'd have a hard time convicting. Yeah. But I do feel like not giving him the death penalty was the best option. Not that it really saved him much issues because he died, what, three years later? But, um... Yeah. I wonder what that what that deputy sheriff said. Did he just like kind of tell the crowd how terrible prison actually was, and they were like, "Well, yeah, that is kind of worse than death." Don't worry, we'll beat him every other Tuesday. <laughs> we'll only give him bread and water, and you know, we'll throw him in the shoe on Wednesdays after we beat him, just to you know add to the discomfort. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the shoe, <laughs> like yeah, I. I don't. As a true crime case, I have a hard time believing the ghost story. As a paranormal enthusiast, I think it's freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. My brain is torn. 
In the 1910 interview with Anderson Jones, he described some details differently. Quote, Going to the house, I felt that something was wrong. All of the doors were closed, and there was an air about the place I did not like. Reaching the steps, I saw a trail of blood. That scared me. But I went to the door and knocked. No one answered. I tried it, and finding the door unlocked, walked into the kitchen. The trail of blood continued across the floor to the dining room. This door, too, was closed. Once more I knocked, and getting no answer, walked in. I stumbled over Mrs. Shue's body. There she was, stretched out on the floor, looking right up at me through wide open eyes. She seemed to be laughing. I was frightened, but still able to reach down and shake her. She was stiff and cold. Running from the house, I called across the field to Aunt Martha. Mrs. Shue is dead. As she ran to the house, I went down the road for Mr. Shue, finding him at the blacksmith's shop with Charles Topskett. When I told him what I had found, he let out a yell, and with Mr. Tabscott started for the house. I continued on to get Dr. Knapp. Unquote. This trail of blood, which is left out of many of the retellings of the legend, may help to explain the cause of death being changed to childbirth from everlasting fame. I'm thinking maybe Zona was hemorrhaging and leaving a trail of blood from something like a miscarriage. Remember that Dr. Knapp was treating her for two weeks for an unspecified female trouble. Yeah. And back then, they didn't have, you know, the medical treatments that they have now for a miscarriage. So if you don't, you know, flesh out flesh out the baby. But you know what I mean. You don't dispel the baby naturally. They can go in and remove it. Um, so that would make sense. But yeah, he's just kind of waiting. They're waiting for it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. In Mary Jane's trial testimony, where she is rambling and run on sentences at the beginning, we can isolate the part between looking in the cellar behind some loose planks and how she talked about the meat every night. Quote, It was a square log house, and it was hewed up to the square. And she said for me to look right at the right-hand side of the door as you go in. And at the right-hand corner, as you go in, well, I saw the place just, exact, just exactly as she told me, and I saw blood right there where she told me, unquote. Mm-hmm. Anderson Jones also points out that when he went to the blacksmith shop to get Mr. Shoe, Mrs. Jones headed to the shoe house and was there when Mr. Shoe arrived. And also, the blacksmith he was working for went along as well. That puts three, at least three other witnesses there. Mm-hmm. The next thing is how the high, is how the legend describes how she was dressed in a high, stiff neck collar dress. Well, I think that this was the dress she wore when they got married, the nicest one she owned. There's a picture of her and Edward, likely from their wedding day, given how they are both dressed in which she's wearing it. However, when Mister Knapp arrived, she wasn't wearing this. But it does seem Edward did assist others in helping dress his wife's corpse for the funeral, which is against Victorian customs. It does make more sense this way if the doctor noticed and reported the bruising from a distance, because he couldn't do a thorough examination. I mean, think about it. If he can't get anywhere near the body to examine it, he's not going to notice the bruising from a distance through a scarf and a high collar obstructing his view. 
Yeah. Mary Jane Hester is very lucky because it seems she had the most knowledge of the crime. And typically the one with the most knowledge becomes the main suspect. As I said. (laughs) She knew about the neck being broken specifically between the first and second vertebrae. Quote, her neck was squeezed off at the first joint, unquote, was how she put it in her court testimony. How else could she know this very specific detail without her daughter's spirit telling her so? She was there. She knew. Although it'd be, I mean, I don't know how physically fit Mary Jane, Mary Jo, whatever her name was, uh, was, but it is very hard to strangle somebody anyway and to strangle them hard enough to break a neck. Yeah. I mean, it could simply have been. Here's a theory she miscarries, she's going through a bout of depression, she goes to kill herself, her mother shows up tries to save her but then when she realizes she's dead she figures this is a way to get rid of edward who she despises i don't know theory i like the idea of the ghost telling her what happened i do too but i'm thinking from a a crime true crime true crime standing like i said like she would be my first well no husband would be my first suspect but as soon as she comes with detailed crime scene information i'm immediately going wait a second right right like there's some like how do you know this psychics don't even get it that right when they do help in crime scene stuff you know what i mean yeah (laughs) and i mean the only quotes we really have is the court testimony and that was long after they everybody already knew the neck was broken between the first and second vertebrae well and it's convenient that she comes out with a story about the ghost after that other story is published. Yeah. But we also have to assume that she knew how to read. Because a lot of people didn't back then. Yeah. But or that she even picked up the newspaper. I would assume that she probably did because they seem to be a little bit higher class. Yeah. You know? And that's probably more of a reason why she had issues with Edward if he was just a blacksmith. That would probably add more to his... Or her dislike of him. Oh, You're not good, good enough for my daughter type thing. Yeah. I don't know. I There's not enough evidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was then, obviously. Apparently. Yeah. I mean, the fact that they did reopen the case, I'm okay with that. Because if it's an untimely death and there's a question about the circumstances, look into it. If there's nothing to be found, then there's nothing to be found. But if there's something to be found, a murderer needs to be imprisoned for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm wondering if the bruising on the neck wasn't just from the scarf and stuff being tight around it so tight. See, and then his second telling, there was no stairs. So I'm wondering. Yeah, there was no stairs. She wasn't found at the bottom. he He didn't find her at the bottom of stairs. He found her in the dining room. Yeah. And... The dining room, uh, kind of the way the house was laid out, the dining room was here and the stairs were way the hell over on the other side. Yeah. So. All I can say is what happened is he was very upset because he couldn't have his pudding. Because there was no meat. You can't have your pudding. Oh, God. (laughs) 
It was really hard for me not to say that when you read that. <laughs> I was like, oh, I know why he did it. He couldn't have his after-dinner pudding because she didn't have any meat. Now, we've made light of a bottle of this stuff, but I do want to step up here and, on a serious note, domestic abuse is toxic. And... Whether you're a male or a female, if you are in a domestic, a domestic abusive relationship, get out. Get out. I mean, you may feel like you're trapped. Tell somebody. Let them help you. There are battered women's shelters. There are all kinds of places that can help you. Get out. Because it will eventually result in your death. Yep. So just just get out. They're not worth it. They're not worth your life. So that's my serious note. But now as for this case, I think that I think that the fact that it's a small town with a obviously a big gossip mill, I think that hurt him a lot. Yeah. Cuz you don't really know what the true story is. You just kind of all all these rumors and I mean, like I said, the mother didn't like him. So if the mother saw any opportunity to get rid of him permanently, to get because I mean, let's say he didn't kill her and she died of a miscarriage, right? The mother's still gonna blame him for that because she wouldn't have. Be first of all, she didn't like him. And also, second of all, she wouldn't have miscarried if it wasn't for him. Yeah, yeah. Because she wouldn't have been pregnant. And and they were well, really also if I mean. She might not didn't even know she was pregnant. Yeah. So, and they were really close. Her her mother and her. Yeah. Um, I mean, heck, just listen to like how her ghost was described, like how she was venting. Like he said, I didn't make any meat, but listen to all this shit I had laid out. I had jams and jellies, and you know, like yeah. listen to this spread. <laughs> and when they got married, because they disapproved, I mean, they didn't hear from her again. They never even went to their house. Yeah. To see their new home or anything it was kind of just it's almost like they were just cut off from each other after it yeah i'd like to see the evidence on whether there was jam (laughs) (laughs) there's jam i need to know if there was jam in the pantry that that next day and Um, two types of apple butter and because okay that means that he killed her left her at the bottom of the stairs then he would have had to clean up dinner there's no report of food in the dining room (laughs) yeah and then, and then he went and got the eggs because there were no eggs. Yeah. And then he set up an 11-year-old boy to find the body. Yeah. Who then had to sit in on the autopsy. Yeah. Uh, there's 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 a lot of circumstantial evidence to say that he was responsible, but then there's a lot of circumstantial evidence or lack thereof that would lead me to believe he was not guilty. And then, I mean... You know, Anderson Jones, he does that 1910 interview, but memory is a real fickle thing. Oh, yeah. You know, the details are so much different, and it could have just been that's how it, it changed. Or I'm also confused that, you know, he said there was blood and mm-hmm. all this, but they never claimed of any there was never open blood, marks yeah. or anything on her body. Yeah. Which would lead me to believe that if it was blood and she had been having women trouble, troubles, it would be a miscarriage. You know something hemorrhaged. Maybe she had gone to get the eggs, started coming back in the house, started to have a miscarriage. 
Yeah, that's what it sounds yeah. like because the way it starts on the porch. Yeah. yeah. And then into the house and then, <clears throat> you know, she finally just fell over. And, and it very well could have been that she wasn't hadn't miscarried yet, but she was spotting or something. So that's why she was in bed resting. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. they would put you on bed rest, especially if you're early. I mean, she's only, what, a few months into the marriage? Yeah. yeah. So she's only a few months along. So the doctors would put her on bed rest. And then she gets up and she does that. Makes sense there. As for the neck being broken, yeah, I mean, that could have happened while they were dressing her. I, she obviously got pulled upstairs because that's where she was when the doctor got there. Yeah. So just taking her upstairs, I maybe mean, they dropped her. I mean the corpse. <laughs> the corpse traveled for fifteen miles to her place of birth to be yeah. buried over frozen roads in a wagon. Yeah, or a cart. Or I mean, I don't know what they used, but I mean, it could have happened any time during then as well. And my thought is too. At that point, that's when they load her up to take her. Why didn't the doctor examine her then? Yeah, when the yeah. husband wasn't there. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... And if Mary Jane had anything to do with this, I mean, why would she be like, dig her up, let's... Yeah. Well, because she had the ghost. Oh, she had the ghost story. Yeah, she she had her ghost sister, her ghost sister, her ghost daughter witness. And then, like you're saying, she's probably more upper middle class here, so mm-hmm. her word has a little more weight than... A blacksmith. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, even then, trade workers were still not now, quite in that middle. <coughs> yeah. Now, when I first read this blog post, because it was like the 1890s, I thought it was going to be like Mary Jane went to like a seance and then like her <laughs> daughter showed up and like told her all this stuff. That's also very important, too, because we are getting like that's, that's part of the beginning of the spiritual movement. too. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that's what I was going to be digging into. <laughs> hmm. It's a very interesting case, and it makes mm-hmm. me intrigued, and I want more information. But you dug pretty damn deep. I say it was, you know, two hundred years ago. I know. <laughs> yeah, I want DNA evidence. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I tried to pull the 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 story from the legend into some of the facts I found, to some witness statements. Yeah, I did my best. <laughs> I think you did a good job. I do too. I, I made the doctor not seem so. Dumb. <laughs> I don't know. I still kind of felt like the doctor was a bit stupid, but we're also talking. Are talking two hundred years ago, and like well, I said, crime like, scene forensics was a lot different back then. Like the way they describe it, like whenever the doctor starts getting closer, he starts crying harder. So I can almost see like he takes a couple step forward. He's like, what, 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 what? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> He's like, I'll just stand by the door here. Oh, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but like I said, too, at the beginning, I mean, it's only weird because it's not how you think you would react. Yeah. Yeah. But unless you are in that situation, you don't know how you would react. Yeah. Nobody nobody should be judged by the way they grieve. Yeah. Uh, you see this all the time on crime shows, you know, it, um, where they're like, well, the mother acted this way after her son died. And it's like, there's no set standard for what yeah. grief is. It's I, a very individual thing. When dad died, I don't think I cried. I don't think I cried until his funeral. Yeah. You know, and then it was like, it turned on. But 
No, I mean, I think I came home that night and I just sat in the recliner and stared off into space. I don't, I don't remember doing anything for like the first couple of days. Yeah. You know, I had to go to the funeral home the next day and help <laughs> arrange his funeral, but I didn't cry there. I remember going getting an X-ray. Yeah, you busted, you broke your hand, and then going to the doctor, the ne- another doctor, the next day to double check and get a brace. <laughs> And crying myself to sleep and crying in the shower and drinking a lot. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we all did it differently. And then, I mean, the day after his funeral, I found out I was pregnant. Yeah. So then flipped my world completely upside down. And I went from being, you know, grief stricken to excited and grief stricken and yeah, so I mean, you never know until you are in those situations how you would react. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, By the way, uh, for those who are dealing with, you know, grief, don't punch a brick wall. Yeah. Just a heads up. Brick wall wins every time. Yeah. Unless you're like the Hulk or like Iron Man or something, the wall wins. Yeah. <laughs> At least I was smart enough to like punch it straight on. Like I hammer fisted it and just <laughs> broke the side of my hand. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I th- I I think he was more convicted because he was an asshole. Yeah, I and think sure. because he was so yeah. cocky about it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, if you didn't kill somebody, you would feel kind of cocky about it. Like, yeah, yeah like, I'm going to get off with this because I didn't do it. Well, I, it makes me think back to Damien Eccles. Like, we've talked about him a lot. He was a very cocky asshole in the courtroom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was like, there's no way they're going to convict me. There's absolutely no evidence. <laughs> I wasn't there. They have nothing like this is just a waste of my time. And then sure enough, he gets convicted and put on death row. I mean, yeah. the same kind of story here. I think the guy was just being an asshole and he got convicted because he was an asshole. Yeah. And it's not against the law to be an asshole. It might have been back then. You don't know. <laughs> it could have been. <laughs> yeah, Sometimes I feel like it should be now. <laughs> <Yeah>. But... <laughs> Well, and not death penalty. <laughs> For those of you who enjoyed our, uh, you know, true crime part of the episode. Yes. <laughs> join our Patreon. Listen to a few episodes of our true crime podcast yeah. we tried to start year, yeah. a couple years ago. Uh, no, about a year ago. Unearthing <laughs> evidence. Yeah. We've got two parts of the smiley face murderers on there. Or <laughs> smiley face killers and one part of the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, I'm working on editing the last of the smiley face. <laughs> and then I will edit what I have of our Oklahoma City bombing episodes. We put that not on this on Unearthing Paranormalcy. Yeah, we did put that one on here. Um, I'll finish what I have and put it on there. I do have an interview with a bombing survivor that I will be editing up and oh, putting right. it on there. Uh, I won't. We won't do a whole episode for it, but I will put her interview on there for people to hear it. Um, but... Yeah, check out our Patreon at UMP Normalcy. It's patreon.com slash UMP Normalcy. And also go to our website, umpnormalcy.com. You can also find links to everything on there, uh, as well as our Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. Uh, We are getting new members on our Discord. We're getting new members on our Facebook group. It's awesome. Welcome to everybody who has joined in this last week. Uh, well, everybody who's joined at all, but everybody <laughs> in this last week is too. Um, again, thank you to our Patreons, uh, Chase and Britt. Uh, we really appreciate your support. 
And hopefully soon we'll be able to use some of our Patreon stuff to upgrade our podcast a little bit. Um, or maybe we'll have enough to go stay in a haunted place. Um, also, don't forget about our brother and sister podcasts. We've got Smuts Up, Lux Occult, Administrism, Faith Blind Council, and Ad Hoc History. And also, don't forget to check out our friends over at Grognostics. And until next time, keep digging.